Good morning, ministers. This is a day in the thought life of an anxious person. The alarm clock goes off and he thinks to himself, I should have gotten up earlier today and worked on my presentation. I am so lazy. No, no, I'm not really lazy. My boss just gives me too much work and gives me no support to get it all done. He doesn't like me. Ever since he came to my department, he's been trying to get me fired, get me in trouble. This guy in the cubicle next to me is always kissing up to the boss, trying to take my job. No big deal. The company's not doing very well anyway. May not be around for another 10 years. But then my pension's gonna be in jeopardy. How will I pay for my son's college with, without a pension? Probably have to sell my house and move into an apartment. But the way my son's doing in school, he might not qualify to go to college anyway. He gets up, he gets dressed, he gets his coffee, he goes to his car and says, I hate this rush hour traffic. People always cutting me off all the time. One day I'm gonna have an accident. Hope it's not a bad accident. Hope I don't lose a limb or maybe even lose my life. Well, I have life insurance anyway. My children will be taken care of, that's all good. And my, my, my wife, she probably would remarry anyway. She never really loved me. She'd probably be glad to get another chance at love. We never talk anymore anyway. I got married too young. I'll probably never get the chance to live out my life dreams. Life sucks. He drives through rush hour traffic, he gets to his job, he parks his car, and he jumps out and greets his coworkers with a big smile on his face like he always does. Anxious, secretly defeated, and sabotaged. And tomorrow morning he's going to get up and repeat the same ritual. And while his worst fears may never actually come to fruition in this material world, he will live his entire life paralyzed by the vague and unspecified threats that refuse to be resolved. The anxious person. And what is God's resolution for this psychic response of dread? The first thing Paul the Apostle instructs us through Jesus Christ is to stop being anxious. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be overly concerned about anything. Do not worry. But this is much easier said than done, isn't it? Do not be anxious about anything. There are so many things in the world to be concerned about. Inflation, climate change, political upheaval, cultural change, the weakening job market, wars and rumors of wars. So much to be concerned about. And these are things that we should be concerned about. But anxiety is not just concern. <clears throat> to be anxious is to be overly concerned. And unbeknown to many of us, anxiety is a form of meditation. You ever thought about that? Anxiety is a form of meditation. That's what the Greek term for anxiety actually means, to meditate upon things that are beyond your ability to change. And we all tend to do this from time to time. It's a natural, reflective response that I believe we inherited from the fall. You see it on the highway all the time whenever there's an accident. 
The ambulance is already on the scene. The police are already directing traffic. The tow truck is there hitching up the damaged vehicles. But we still slow down and almost come to a complete stop to assess the problem. They call it rubbernecking. And most of the people who are rubbernecking, most of the people who are stopping to look have no CPR experience. They couldn't help even if they wanted to, and they don't want to be a part of the solution. They just want to look. There seems to exist within us a morbid fascination with the tragic. But our fixation on the tragic tends to slow us down and to distract us from the business of driving increasing the likelihood that we ourselves will have an accident. I hate to stop at accidents. I'm the guy that's just trying to get through. I see the car overturned, I see the smoke, I see the ambulance, I just wanna get around and go where I don't need to stop, I don't need to see, I just wanna go. And I'm driving along kind of aggressively, I admit it. I'm driving along and the person in front of me has to, what are you stopping for, what are you looking for? We have this morbid fascination with the tragedy. We just want to see it. Psychologists say it's because we want to learn. We're, we're creatures who love to learn things. I don't believe that. I just think we just love to see the tragic. It slows us down. There seems to exist within us a morbid fixation and fascination with these things. Our anxiety causes us to have accidents because when we're anxious, we're not living in the now, but in the land of what if. This is what anxiety does. Anxiety keeps painting accidents in our minds and we keep slowing down to take a look. What if, and, and what if, and what, what if that, what if, what if, what if, what if I fail? What if I get sick? What if my child goes away and doesn't come back to see me? What if, what if, what if? And the problem with this kind of thinking is that while we spend our days guarding against every negative possibility in the world, we restrict ourselves from living and enjoying our best life right now. We forfeit the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ today. Living in the land of what if. Living in a world of fear and self-defensiveness. King Solomon made an observation in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse four. He says this, the person who watches the wind will never plant. And the person who looks at the clouds will never harvest. The person who is always distracted by their anxiety, always living in the world of what if, will never have a productive life here and now. Because they're spending their, their mental life in the what if, in things that do not even exist yet. My friend came to my house and told me he was thinking he was going to lose his job. Things were changing on the job. He told me that on January 1st, and he was worried and concerned that he was going to lose his job. And all the time we talk, and he'd tell me, they're, they're out to get me, man. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my job. Then finally, January 31st, guess what happened? He lost his job. And he came to my house and said, I told you, man, they were out to get me. I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. I said, yeah, well, you know what your problem is, though, is that you didn't just get fired once. You got fired 31 times. So what do you mean? Every day that you spent worrying, they're gonna fire me today. They're gonna fire, you got fired again. And you fired yourself again. And you fired, if you're gonna get fired, you're gonna get fired in the future. Today, you have a job. Just live in the moment, live right now. Don't, don't fire yourself every day. That's what anxiety does. Anxiety makes you keep repeating the pain, the potential pain, the potential suffering over and over and over again. And you become paralyzed. And unbeknown to you, you're not going forward, but you're not going backward. You're just standing still. Solomon says, if you spend your time watching the wind, you will never plant. 
If you spend your time looking at the clouds, looking for rain, you will never harvest. In other words, the person who lives their life always in anticipation of the bad will never find the time, will never have the space to do what is good. The person who requires that everything be perfectly aligned before they make their move will never make their move. Anxiety breeds procrastination. Procrastination leads to laziness. And laziness leads to spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty leads to a lack of godly imagination, to a lack of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Paul is not advising us against anxiety as some therapeutic remedy. Some therapeutic remedy to life's many dangers and circumstances. No, this is not therapy. Paul is steering us away from anxiety because anxiety weakens our faith and can even cause us to distrust God. And therefore, in response to the slightest intimation of anxiety, our first response should be to recommit ourselves, to recommit our lives to the Lord. Two Thursdays ago, I got a phone call from my doctor who never calls me. And when I saw his name in my phone, I said, what could he possibly want? And so my first instinct was not to answer and to call him later, but I said, maybe, maybe it's important I'll answer. I answered the phone and he's sounding very serious and solemn. And he says to me, I've got to get you in as soon as I can to do a, a biopsy on something that, that I saw in your tests. And I said, well, what, what did you see? He said, listen, I don't want to tell you what I saw right now. Just go and take this test on Monday. And, and, and I made a space for you. And go and take this test and we can talk afterwards. First, I want to verify what I saw. Hmm. What do you think my first response was? In my mind, oh Lord, I'm about to die. <laughs> Wouldn't that be your response? I mean, it, hey, the doctor's saying he sees something, he's sounding all serious. And my first response was, oh Lord, I'm about to die. But then there was my second response, which didn't take but about 30 seconds to come to, which was to begin to recount my life and my experiences and think about all the wonderful times I've had and enjoyed and to say, you know what, whatever they found, if it's my time to go, I want to see Jesus anyway. That's exactly what I said. I want to see Jesus anyway. If this is it, then good. I'll go see Jesus. Yeah, yeah. At the slightest intimation of anxiety, I've got to recommit to the Lord. Look, whatever it is. Live, die, sink, or swim, I'm in with Jesus. And nothing's going to change that. No bad news in this world could ever change that. And so I really, really was not worried, though I was expecting the worst. It is possible to expect the worst and not to worry about it. When you're trusting in God, you're not worrying about it, but you're, you do face reality. You're not living in some la-la land. You realize cancer is real. I could die like anybody else, but you don't overly worry about it. How do you do that? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Paul says that instead of worrying, the first thing we should do is we should pray. First thing we should do Let's pray. In everything, he says, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, instead of worrying about it, pray about it. Instead of worrying about it, pray about it. You want the enemy to stop harassing you with negative thoughts? Every time you have a negative thought, pray. I guarantee you after a while he'll stop giving you negative thoughts because every time he gives you a negative thought, you pray. <laughs> That's not what's supposed to happen. 
Paul says if you're feeling anxious, you need to pray and plead with God. In other words, stop worrying about it and pray about it. And if the problem is really pressing, or if the situation is not just a matter of your imagination, but you have a real life dilemma, Paul says we should plead with God. To pray is to make a request of God. To plead is to make an urgent request. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread is merely a request. Especially when I have food in the pantry and in the refrigerator. I have money in my pocket to buy food. I'm just making a general request. Give us this day our daily bread. But if I haven't eaten for, two, eaten for two or three days and I don't have money to buy food, I have to make a plea. I need bread and I need bread right now. I can't wait any longer. There's a difference between a general prayer and making a plea to God. When something is so troubling to you, when something is so haunting, yeah, that you fall down on your knees and you say, God, I need you now. This is, not, this is not one of those times where I can wait a long time for you to get around to me. I need you to cut in the line and come and see about me right now. Have you ever had those times? Where you make a desperate plea? You ever had one of those moments? Where it's urgent, I need you now. This needs to be resolved and it needs to be resolved now. Make your request and make your urgent request known to God. When I pray, when I make my general requests of God, I pray about things that may threaten my comfort. But when I plead about things that pose an existential threat to me, then I am pleading with God for my very life, for my very existence. Ah, I've been there. And the person who struggles with anxiety that is difficult to control may often need to plead with God. When the thoughts won't stop and you can't slow them down, have you ever had that happen to you where negative thoughts start and they just snowball out of your control? And you're trying to get back to normalcy and you're, you're trying to think with clarity, but the negative thoughts just keep on rolling. And you can't stop them. At those moments, you need to make a plea to God. And how will God respond? Well, God may respond in a lot of different ways. Based on the reality of the threat that I am facing, God may open a door for you to escape. God may give you the provision that you require, but very often, God does not provide tangible responses to our prayers. And do you know why? Because a lot of what we pray about is not grounded in the reality of our situation. We have over-magnified our problems. We're imagining things. And you can write this one down. God does not provide real solutions to imaginary problems. God does not provide real solutions to imaginary problems. Anxiety is a response to a potential or an imaginary problem that may or may not be grounded in reality. Nevertheless, if the potential problem is causing any discomfort, I am to take that problem to the throne of grace and leave it there, and I am to thank God for answering my prayers. Sometimes we pray and we're praying unrealistically about things that don't really matter, about things that will never come to pass. God doesn't entertain things like that. But if my request is grounded in reality, I have no doubt that God will respond by granting me the thing I prayed about. And while I'm waiting for the thing to manifest in my life, God will give me a sense of peace 
to weather life's storms. But how does God respond when I am overly concerned? How does God respond when I am praying with anxiety and from my own imagination? How does God respond when what I'm worrying about has not even the remotest possibility of even happening? When I'm fixated on negative possibilities? Well, God responds only by giving me peace. Paul the Apostle says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Did you know that there is a peace with God that is truly out of this world? That there is a peace in God that is incongruent with any peace one might find in the whole world. Our God is the God of peace. His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, is the Prince of Peace. And Jesus Christ is the one who calms the storms that beat against my heart, trouble my soul. He is the Prince of Peace. And when I'm feeling vulnerable, no matter whether my concerns are reasonable or unreasonable, Jesus Christ assigns to us his century of peace. The peace of God, which is incomprehensible, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what you need. You don't need a resolution to your problem. You don't need an answer to your difficulty or your dilemma. What you really need is for God to guard your heart and your mind. Created dilemma. Anxiety, brothers and sisters, is a self-created dilemma. Anxiety is my propensity to self-sabotage my own life and my own future most often because of guilt and because of shame from which I have not been delivered. Anxiety, in other words, is a judge. Anxiety is a slave master, demanding a pound of flesh for deeds that I may have done, demanding a pound of flesh for pain that I may have experienced and for the shame that is too deep for words. Anxiety is a slave master. Anxiety is the bully on the playground, always threatening, always warning, always reminding me of things from my past from which I may never be released. Anxiety comes to hinder me because it feels I am not worthy of joy, I am not worthy of peace, I am not worthy of happiness, and so I become my own condemnation, I become my own accuser. And anxiety carries out the sentence against me. The difficult part about anxiety, this is the really difficult part about anxiety, is that anxiety emanates from within yourself. That's what's disturbing about anxiety. It doesn't come from outside of you. Anxiety emanates from you, which is very confusing because you love yourself. Why would you do this to yourself? Anxiety actually emanates from your own self. That makes it very complicated, that makes it very confusing, but that also makes it very believable. Hmm. Anxiety is a form of self-rejection. Anxiety is a form of self-loathing that keeps us from finding true peace in our hearts. But we have peace with God. And though we may never fully recover from our own sense of self-loathing, or in some cases, even self-deprecation, we have been relieved of our responsibility to judge our own lives because we now belong to Jesus Christ. And we have no authority to judge ourselves or even to condemn ourselves. Jesus Christ is greater than our consciences. Jesus Christ is greater than our imaginations. And by his own authority, Jesus Christ commands that the wind and the waves cease and be still. And he gives us peace. He delivers us from our anxiety. And this is the way you find deliverance from anxiety, through prayer and through pleading and through thanksgiving, making your requests known to God. But now we face a different question. 
a question of maintenance. We've been set free from being overly concerned for the moment. We've prayed, we've pleaded, we've thanked God, we've found temporary peace and deliverance. But some of us, even most of us, have a habit of worrying. For some of us, being overly concerned is a habit of our minds. And even though we've been delivered from anxiety for the moment, we may very well find ourselves faced with this same dilemma again in a very short time. Hmm. And the question becomes this, how can we avoid being subdued by our worries and our concerns in the first place. How can we avoid anxiety? How do we stop worrying? How do we stop being overly concerned? How do we nip anxiety in the bud much further up the stream? And in verse 8, Paul the Apostle answers this question for us by providing us with a regimen of mental hygiene. Yes, I said it, mental hygiene designed to keep us free and clear of becoming overly concerned at any time. Listen to Paul's godly advice. He says in verse 8, finally brothers and sisters, whatever is true, I like that, whatever is true, what does that mean? Whatever is grounded in reality, whether good things or bad things, doesn't matter. Whatever is actual fact and not fiction and not just your imagination, whatever is reality. Paul is not about to lay out some remedy to help us avoid reality. That's not what faith is about. Because in Paul's mind and in our experience, reality is a good thing. Reality is good even when it's bad. It's still good. Reality is better than non-reality no matter whether it's good or bad. There is never a better time than this present moment no matter what I may be experiencing. There is never a better time than my present. There is never a better outcome than the one I am actually experiencing right now. Whatever is reality, in other words, get out of your head and be present to what actually is. He's gonna give you some advice here. He's talking mental hygiene. Don't get caught up in your imagination. Don't get caught up in the potential of trouble. No, deal with what is in front of you right now, whatever is reality. Hmm. Be the kind of person who courageously engages life and the world as, they, as it actually presents itself to you. It sounds real simple to do, doesn't it? But let me tell you, it's not as simple as it seems. And believe it or not, you can do a, a quick examination of your own heart right now. Most of us do not engage unfiltered reality as often as we might think. Most people do not live in reality. Most people live constantly in their own heads, which is not reality. Most people are not present in the moment now. That's a fact. We tend to filter reality a million times before we ever examine it. We tend to color reality with our own presuppositions and biases before we ever hear the argument. We tend to view reality through our own personal lenses that's been colored by our own life experiences. And this is why two people can look at the same thing and have two completely different experiences. Because we all filter reality through our own personal filter. Dr. Gary Chapman gives this example. He says two couples went to uh, the Grand Canyon and the one man is standing there with his wife and he looks out over the, the, beautiful, the beautiful expanse and says, wow, look at God's creation. The hilltops and the mountains and, the, and oh, this is just so beautiful. God is an awesome creator. He's just in awe 
and amazed. And the other husband standing with his wife says, you brought me all the way out here to see a hole in the ground? <laughs> they saw the same thing, but they filtered it through their own presuppositions. And they came to two totally different conclusions. Hmm, that's what your filter does. It causes you to see the world and to see life in a particular way that may not be in alignment with things as they actually are. Paul is saying, get out of your head, whatever is true, whatever actually is. So the question becomes, and which of them is right? The one who is in awe or the guy who thinks this is just a big hole in the ground? Which one of them is actually correct? They're both right. The Grand Canyon is beautiful, an awesome display of God's power and wisdom, but the Grand Canyon is also just a big hole in the ground, isn't it? They're both right. <laughs> it doesn't have to be either or. Very often in life, it is both and. It is both good and evil. It is both black and white. It is both up and down. Most things in life, But we don't see it like that. We have our opinion and we think that this is the way things actually are. We can't see the other side of the coin. We can't see the other side of the story because we're looking at reality through our own lens and we're drawing our own conclusions and we're calling our conclusions reality. Hmm. I hope that's not too complicated to understand. My point is that Paul is not advising us to take some rosy view of the world that doesn't acknowledge what might be wrong. That's just positive thinking. Anybody can do that. Paul is admonishing us to see and to drink in the whole picture, unfiltered, undistilled, to know what is real. To be courageous enough to accept the both end of reality. That life is good in many respects and life is bad in many other respects. That life is sweet but life is hard. That life is difficult but life is easy. That life is both of these things no matter how I view it. That's what he's saying to us. Accept or relate to reality as it actually is, minus your opinion and your personal narrative, which too often causes you to go to extremes. That's what anxiety is. Anxiety is extreme. Always exaggerating the problem. Always underplaying the solution. Paul says, live in the now, live in reality as it is. You know who does this? You know who does this? God does this. God sees everything as it actually is. And when we learn to do the same, we will be better equipped to navigate all of life with a kind of wisdom that does not lean on our own understanding, but a kind of wisdom that is able to consistently see the good and the bad in everything without any deception. When you do this, when you live in reality and you acknowledge reality for what it is without your narrative, you'll begin to recognize that there are some doors that you've been praying for God to open that were open to you all the time. You just couldn't see it because you're not living in reality. You're living in your head. Whatever things are true, whatever things are reality. I hope that'll be your prayer this week, that God will help you to see what is real without your biases and your prejudices, but that God will allow you to see and to comprehend what is real. Whatever things are true, whatever things, Paul says, are honorable, Whatever things are worthy of respect and of high regard. You know, not everything that is true is necessarily very honorable. 
Paul says we should have regard for all of reality, but we should revere those things that serve God's purposes, those things that are honorable, dignified, those things that are righteous. We should meditate on things like acts of kindness. We should train ourselves to deeply consider selfless service and sacrifice. We should revere hard work, dedication, and consistency. We should engage with our intellects those characteristics and proclivities that, that lend themselves to the corporate good. Meditate, Paul says, on things that are honorable. We should deeply contemplate whatever is right. In other words, whatever conforms to God's standard, whether the act or deed is done by a saint or by a sinner. You know, sinners do good deeds as well. Sinners can do things that are right as well. Paul says, whatever things are right, we should always acknowledge right actions, right attitudes, right words whenever we encounter them. Whatever things are right, whatever things are pure, whatever things are genuine or authentic, Paul says, whatever things are the real deal, whatever things are said or done in sincerity, be it good or be it evil, Respect things that are genuine, things that are authentic. <sighs> there are some things that are genuinely and authentically good, and there are some things that are genuinely evil. We should know and respect the difference, but we should respect things that are authentic. We should not live a lie. We should not spend too much of our time acknowledging or entertaining the lies of others. Catch that. We should not live a lie and we should not spend too much of our time acknowledging or entertaining the lies of others. You know it already, I'm gonna say it. God does not recognize a lie. God does not acknowledge falsities. God expects everyone to be who and what they truly are, and that is the only way that God is going to engage. God does not respect, God does not engage a lie. Sometimes when I'm praying, you get down to pray, and you're doing it more out of obligation than anything else, and you get down to pray, and you find yourself being robotically religious, just going through the motions and saying the right words. You know what I do when I catch myself doing that? I just stop. You, have, you, have you, you ever done it before? You, you, you're praying and you can tell that you're not being authentic? Anybody? <laughs> you're like, you, you can tell that what you're saying is not really what you're really thinking. It's like, oh, stop, let, let, time out. Sorry about that. Let me try again. Yeah, yeah. God does not engage a lie. God does not want to talk to my false self. God does not even recognize my false self. And so when I'm speaking to him from a lie, God turns his head, uh, come back when you're ready to be Calvin. Not Apostle Calvin, not Bishop and Prophet Calvin and all this stuff you're doing right now. Come back when you're ready to be authentic. <laughs> yeah, and authentic isn't necessarily bad, but sometimes you want to appear more religious before God than you are. And the Holy Spirit checks you and says, look, if you're gonna come in here talking now, you gotta be real, don't come. Don't, 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 don't come faking before God. God sees everything as it actually is, even if you don't. Be authentic. Whatever things are authentic, whatever things are lovely, Paul says. Whatever things are beautiful. But of course, Beauty is subjective, right? One man's trash is another man's treasure. Beauty is subjective. What is agreeable to me may not be pleasing to Hans. Beautiful things tend to feed the soul. Beautiful things can add a, a beauty and pleasure to my life. Paul says, think about things that you consider to be beautiful. I go for long walks all the time. I like to walk in the woods because it's beautiful to me. It encourages me, it pleases me. This is Paul's advice for dealing with anxiety. <laughs> Very interesting. Whatever is commendable, Paul says. 
And this I found to be a very interesting term. Whatever is commendable, a very interesting term. Listen to what it means. To be commendable can mean to be worthy of approval, but religiously silent. <laughs> interesting, isn't it? To be worthy of approval, to be worthy of admiration, but religiously silent. This is such good wisdom to me. Paul is saying that everything that is good and commendable isn't necessarily uh, connected to your faith. Some things are just commendable in and of themselves. Everything doesn't have to be religious. Don't tell me I'm voting for this political party because this is the party that most stands with Jesus Christ. Like, no, you know what? It's commendable. Your party is commendable. It doesn't have to be connected to your religion. Just, it's religiously silent. The person who says, I don't gamble. I don't gamble because the Bible says, ho, ho, wait, wait, wait a minute, brother. Wait a minute. You just don't gamble. That's commendable. You don't have to connect that to your religion because it's not actually connected to your religion. It's commendable. It's good that you don't spend your money on things that are taking a risk. That's good. It's commendable. But it doesn't make you more righteous. It has nothing to do with righteousness. Even though it's an admirable thing to do. Religious people like to connect scripture to everything. I don't eat pork because the Bible says, Amy, look, you don't eat pork, that's commendable. You won't get high blood pressure. That's a commendable thing. You don't have to connect that to your religion. It's okay. Can you see that? Some things are just good in and of themselves, without a Bible verse, without any scripture. You don't have to justify everything about your life with the Bible. Some things are just good and commendable in and of themselves, and that's okay. I like that. Worthy of approval, but religiously silent, neither here nor there. Whatever things are commendable. If there is any excellence, and if anything is worthy of praise, Paul says, think about these things. And this is the list of Paul's alternatives to anxious thinking. This is Paul's list of alternatives to anxious thoughts and anxiety. Change your focus. Pray, plead, thank God, and change your focus. Stop dwelling on and meditating on negative things. Change your focus. I tell you what, try it this week. Try it this week. And see how much of a habit you're actually into thinking negative thoughts. It's much more difficult to do than it seems. Try all week just to focus on positive things, things that are lovely, just and pure, and try it. I bet you won't make it 20 minutes. Most of us have constant anxious and negative thoughts. These things cause paralysis, procrastination, spiritual laziness. It slows us down. It causes us to have unnecessary accidents because of the way we think. I've said this in sermons before, I'll say it again today, that it is incumbent upon every believer to take the time to think about what you spend your day thinking about. How often do you do that? How often do we do that? How often do we sit down and think about what we think about? I used to be much better at this than I am now. I used to sit on the side of my bed at nighttime before I go to bed and think about what I've been thinking about all day. Try that. You will find that the majority of your day is spent worrying about potential problems and worries and defending yourself and all the things that could go. Most of our days are spent in negative thoughts. And then we wonder why we continuously get negative outcomes. Well, because you're thinking negative thoughts all the time and you have no peace. Paul says if you think on these things, the God of peace will give you peace. Change the way you think. Take control of your personal thought life. Somebody says, I can't control what I think about. That's not true, that's not true. 
Paul says this as an instruction. This is a command. Paul is saying you can control the way that you think. You don't have to keep thinking the same way that you've always thought. If you don't have peace within, it is because of the way you think. Let me say it again. If you do not have peace within, it is because of the way you think. That's hard to accept. Because the way you think, you think it's normative. This is the way I think, this is normal. Paul says, no, no, no. Most people are on autopilot, just thinking whatever thoughts cross their minds, taking no responsibility for anything they're thinking. Because it's easier that way. It's very easy to just live and just let your thoughts go wherever they want. But Paul is saying here, you are responsible for managing your thought life. You are responsible for the things you think about. And if you want peace, you better take control of your thoughts. You'd better start countering your negative thoughts with positive thoughts, with whatever things are lovely and just and good and pure and commendable, whatever things are true, whatever things are real. If you do that, Paul says that the God of peace will give you peace. There is a lot of trouble in the world. There is a lot of trouble in my house. There's a lot of trouble in my life. But there is not a lot of trouble in me. <laughs> you hear me? There's a lot of trouble all around me. There are a lot of negative situations all around me. But there is not a lot of trouble in me. Because I refuse to just sit and meditate on negative things. And that's the point. A lot of us struggle with anxiety. I used to struggle with anxiety real bad until I learned this lesson. Until I learned that managing my thought life was actually a biblical concept and necessary to do if you want to do great things for God. You can't do great things for God if you don't have peace. And what you end up doing is out of your anxiety, serving God out of your anxiety, trying to do the best, trying to be the best, trying to get it right. That's not really serving God out of love. That's serving God out of fear. We should serve God from a place of peace. And that peace in our lives should be as constant as the peace in the kingdom of God. And it can be if you'll take responsibility and begin to exercise and to practice managing your thoughts. You believe that? Next week, I want to hear some praise reports about somebody who took the time this week to sit down and think about what you're thinking about and change your thoughts. Change your negative, unproductive thoughts into positive, constructive thoughts. It may not change anything on the outside. Paul didn't say you're going to change reality with this. No, no. Everything may stay the same. That's not even the objective. The objective is for you to receive peace within, no matter what's happening outside of you. That's the way it should be for the children of God. And I am, I, I, I am so sad that so many believers do not experience that peace. That we let our minds run us in the ground, haunt us and harass us. When Jesus Christ is saying, if you will follow this simple practice of mental hygiene, it doesn't have to be that way. Pray, plead, thank God, and change the way you think, and you will find peace. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning confessing that too often our hearts are prone to wander. That too often we are easily distracted with the cares of this world. We don't want to downplay our feelings. We don't want to downplay our situations but neither do we want to be ruled by them. Lord Jesus, we desire to have the freedom that you have given us through your own cross, by your own blood. 
freedom from fear, freedom from paralysis, freedom from being overly concerned about the things in this world, about even our own lives. For many of us, this will be a new practice of monitoring our thought lives, of monitoring our emotional lives. But I pray that on this week, Father God, you'll be with us, that you'll remind us when we're thinking things that we shouldn't be thinking, when we're thinking things that are not conducive to spiritual growth and development, when we're actually thinking things that are sabotaging our own lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit will make us aware of these things. I pray that you'll give us the power and the discipline to counter those negative thoughts with whatever is true, whatever is reality, whatever is just, whatever is good and commendable, whatever is lovely. That you'll brighten our minds and that you'll lighten our hearts and give us peace. Lord Jesus, you, you stood on the ship and you commanded, peace be still to the wind and the waves. Many of us are troubled and deeply troubled about real life situations even today. And of course we pray, Lord God, that you would intervene in some tangible way and change the situation. But we also pray that even if you don't change the situation, that you'll change our hearts, that you'll change our minds that you'll give us peace as you promised in your word as we make these efforts to discipline ourselves and our thought lives be with us and give us the power, give us the ability to follow through. Change us from the inside out so that the peace that is within us we can share with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.